Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All right, you already know by now, Enough About Me is, and I'm thrilled to say this, sponsored by my great friends at Milton's, the store for men, South Shore Plaza, uh, at the mall over there, or Chestnut Hill Square in Chestnut Hill, where I go. Milton's is the store for men. It's the store of the Kirk and Callahan Show. It's a store to go if you want great summer clothes. If you're looking to go to a wedding, if you're looking to dress casual, by the way, business casual, Milton's is the store to go. You walk in, they'll take care of you 100%. You look great. The prices are great. The people are great. Go to Milton's. Milton's is the store for men. Again, thrilled they sponsor the Enough About Me podcast. Thrilled they're part of the Kirk and Callahan show. We love Milton's. Go to Milton's, the store for men. My guest this week, Jeff Benedict, the co-author with Armin Katayan of this great new sports book, uh, on Tiger Woods, a biography on Tiger Woods, titled, I think, just Tiger Woods, you can find on Amazon, number one New York Times bestseller uh, as we speak right now. One of the best sports biographies I've ever read, probably top five. I went with no expectations at all. I thought, Jesus, another freaking Tiger Woods book? Who wants to read this? And started reading it right away and was blown away by it. The stuff you learn in this book is shocking. I can't recommend this book enough. You know, if, I'm, if, I'm, if a book's not good, I'll tell you. This book is great. Worth reading, long, but you'll blow through it. I'm telling you, one of the best sports books I've read, I don't know, 10 years. And the co-author of that book, Jeff Bendick, is nice enough to join us on this episode of Enough About Me. Yeah, so I read the book. I read the book right when it came out. I think I got the day it came out. And uh, Tiger Woods is one of those guys, when you see his new biography about him, you kind of roll your eyes because he doesn't seem like the sort of subject that's going to lead itself to something interesting just because he himself doesn't let you in that much. So I was stunned. When I read the book and learned as much as I did, you guys, you and Armand Katane did a great job. But when you first thought about Tiger Woods and you picked him as a subject, there must have been some hesitation, no? Um, hesitation, I, I, I think that it was clear from the beginning like this was going to be daunting. Um, right. You know, it's, it's, but I, I actually think that for a journalist to be, to feel that way is a good thing. Um, it's, it's almost like the, it's what gets you up in the morning every day and energizes you to go to work because you, you realize that you're into something that's going to, it's going to test every, every bit of your, your talent and your experience and probably require you to learn and do things that you've never had to do before. And that was, we felt, you know, an epic challenge. Um, his obsession, his long obsession with privacy, uh, with secrecy, um, and, and the wall that had really been around him, I think, since he was a boy. Yeah, no, no question. But I guess, I guess part of this is, and you maybe, I mean, obviously, you know better than I would. My guess is, five years ago, seven years ago, you probably couldn't write the same book. But when the period of time between when he doesn't talk to people or the relationships change, whether it's a Haney, whether it's No Mirror, whether it's somebody who he rented uh, a place from in Augusta, time I think probably allows you to be able to talk to these people. They're probably more comfortable and ready to go as opposed to say half a decade ago. You're right in the respect that there certainly was some of that element in play for us. Uh, but I have to say that there was, we ran into more non-disclosure agreements or NDAs, as people know them as, right. than, than either of us had ever come across in our careers as journalists. 
secondly, there was there's still a what I'll call a hangover effect, meaning a lot of people, even from Tiger's distant, who were still very reluctant and in some cases literally scared or afraid to talk to us about even simple things. Like, for instance, people who went to high school with him were, were afraid to talk about things like just describe the high school to us. They didn't even want to talk about the school. Time didn't erase that. The benefit, though, was that they could probably say things now and open up about things now that they definitely would not have disclosed or talked about when he was in his heyday. What surprised you most? I mean, so you, you got, I'll, I'll just give you my, as a, from a reader perspective, you know, I knew he was a difficult guy. Uh, I knew that he wasn't, you know, the nicest guy for a great portion of his career. I knew he was distant. I knew he was tough to deal with. But he does come across in the book as a, just as an asshole. I mean, I, I don't think there's any, there's any other way around that. I mean, do you think, after working, talking to people for years, do you think that Tiger Woods is an asshole? Uh, that's interesting. I don't. Um, and the way that we, I'll tell you how I got to where I am, where I, where I ended uh, the book. And, and Armin and I don't necessarily see all of these things completely the same. Right. You know, we, we have our own perceptions about him, but where I went through my evolution is I started in the beginning of his life and we wrote chronologically. So, you know, the last chapter that we wrote was the chapter that ended earlier this year. Right. And I'm, what I'm saying is, as I, as I traipsed through the different periods of his life, I certainly did have feelings that were more in line with what you just described. But by the time I got to, uh, you know, I would say the last seven years of his life, particularly around the crash is when it started to change for me, I, I took on a much more uh, empathetic view of him Sympathetic. I'm not saying sympathetic. I'm saying empathetic. I I came ultimately to admire him in ways that I I didn't imagine in the beginning of this process. I'll give you an example of what I mean. Sure. There's two kinds of admiration. One is the admiration for his genius as a professional, as a golfer. And and here's an example of that. Here's a guy who, at the pinnacle of his career, when he is unbeatable and really can only beat himself, but nobody can beat him. At that same time, his personal life is so off the rails that it's hard for most human beings to even comprehend or relate to the degree to which he's gone off the rails personally. And if you think about it, like from your perspective and and what you do as a professional, what Mm -hmm. I do as a writer, Mm -hmm. it, it would be very hard for you or I to function at the level that we do and to have our personal lives in such ruins. And I I found it, frankly, stunning that he could perform as well as he did under a microscope uh, week after week on the tour in a sport that requires such specificity and concentration. Once he was exposed, and and he was really exposed rapidly once he crashed his car on November 27, 2009 in Iowa, there's an unraveling that I think was unprecedented in American sport. Nobody, nobody's uh, ever had their face put in the mud more than Tiger Woods. Whether I mean, obviously some think it's deserved, but there's no question. There's, there's nothing even close. Nothing even close. And, and I thought that the way he handled this is, I, what I did was I looked at, okay, let's look at other people who have, men who have been in the limelight and who were exposed for infidelity scandals um, or, or things re- that really would have ruined their marriage. you got people like Bill Clinton, yep. Elliot Spitzer, mm-hmm. John Edwards, Kobe Bryant. I mean, you can go right down. Yeah, Wiener, yeah. Trump. Yeah, none of, none of those men, none of them 
ever stood up alone the way Tiger did, so without his spouse, he stood up and he actually acknowledged all of these things that he did. He, the, the, the two press conferences that he gave after the scandal broke open, one was one where he didn't take questions, basically at the PGA headquarters, right. and then the second one he gave before he returned at the Masters, and in that one he did take questions. If you look at those two press conferences, and believe me, we analyzed the heck out of both of them, the admissions that he makes and the statements he makes about himself are unprecedented in terms of how much he falls on the sword. And when I looked at that, I thought, you know, you have to at some point give this guy credit, not for what he did in the past. I mean, no one's going to look at that and say, well, that was a good thing. But you have to look at the way he responded to it once he was exposed. And I think there was actually a cathartic element to him being exposed. And, and then there's this sort of death march where he goes to sex addiction treatment, and then he comes through the, the reckoning and the aftermath. And, in, and then after all of that, his body completely breaks down, and he gets to the point where he's basically immobile. And then he has the, the addiction to the opioids and the pain prescriptions. And I think eventually you get to the point with Tiger, at least I did, where as a human being, I looked at him and thought, you know, I, I don't know. I see a guy who he's, he has demonstrated more grit. I'm not, I'm not talking about golf now or even sports. I'm talking about him as a human being. The, the ability for him to come back from all that and to walk out onto a golf course in a sport where you don't wear a helmet and you can't hide behind a team, where it's just you and the, everybody's right on top of you physically when you come out on a golf course and there's millions more watching at home and your face is there and you're looking up and you're, and you're basically saying, I'm back. And, and I'm going to swing again, I think that says a tremendous amount about the way this guy is wired. And for me, I, I got to tell you, Kirk, I just, I admire that. I really do. And I, I think a lot of people who have, you know, been through their own fault. Well, need, right. No, no, no question. I agree. I'll tell you what's interesting, though, is the two things you talked about, being able to, car- the ability to car- uh, compartmentalize, uh, stay so focused while having your personal life in tatters because of his mistakes both elements of that, the the fact that he was uh, the fact that he have affairs and the fact that he was so mentally tough, both of those things are due to his father, which is kind of interesting. I mean, both he got both of those from his dad. I, you know, Kurt, you, so you touched on something here. I, I'm one of those guys who thinks all of us, so many of our personal narratives are about our fathers. are from our parents. Our yeah, and, and for, yeah, son, 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 sons from fathers, especially I, I have found in my in my life anyway. I think that's in in for Tiger Woods. There is no doubt when you, you know I knew it before I read the book, but the book cemented. You guys did a great job. You know, it's it's almost a book about Earl Woods and Tiger Woods in a weird way. That that you know T- Earl Woods is the looming figure over Tiger Woods yeah. probably to this day in his life. There's no there is no way around that. There's no way around it. And the other thing that we tried to do was to show that. For all these years, Earl is such a dominant figure that he he literally overshadowed and snuffed out the role of Coltita, Tiger's mother. Yeah, just right, eliminated her essentially. Yeah, and in our in our mind and in our view, her role is just as important, although much understated. But she's the one who drove him to all of these tournaments when he was a youth, who walked eighteen holes with him weekend after weekend, who literally carried a scorecard around. And when she kept score, she didn't just keep score of what was going on on the golf course. She kept score of all the people around him, Tiger's opponents, and she was ruthless and relentless in her protection of Tiger. And I think she instilled in him some things that were 
so intense. I mean, when she would say things like, when you have your opponent down, you step on their neck. You, you don't have mercy. I mean, when you think of the genteel nature of golf, she was actually training her son the way you might train a boxer and, uh, or someone who plays a violent, aggressive sport. She was, in, in our minds, just as important in this equation as Earl. She just never got the attention that Earl got because of the way Earl was. I mean, Tiger Woods, in a lot of ways, is, is another example. Now, he's one that, that's had a lot of success. But in a weird way, he's not different than, I don't know, a Macaulay Culkin or a Gary Coleman in that he was a television child star at the age of like two or three years old, and his entire childhood was treated differently than other kids. It's almost inevitable in a way. There are very few child stars, like Ron Howard, or I guess people like that, who don't fall into this. But when you're not a regular human being, the stuff that happens, there's an inevitability to it, I think. Yeah, I, you know, Kirk, I would say, you know, if you're looking at the greatest athletes in, in particular sports, if you, right now, it's, it's Tom Brady in football, it's right. LeBron James in basketball, it's Roger Federer in tennis, mm-hmm. it's Tiger Woods in golf. The, the thing is, you can't really compare Tiger to those other three men I just mentioned. He's more comparable to Michael Jackson, Elvis Presley. Definitely. He, that's the better comparison for him because when he was two, he was performing in front of millions of people. Tom Brady was not doing that. No, Tom Brady wasn't doing that until he was 20. I mean, it, it, it was that's different. Right. Yeah. That's right. And that's why I think that what makes more sense is to look at him as a child prodigy and as someone who was what Jimmy Stewart said when Jimmy Stewart was with Bob Hope and right. Douglas. Right. And they, when the show was over, Jimmy Stewart made a very critical observation. That's why we put it in the book. He turned to Mike Douglas and he said, I've, I've seen my share of precocious children like this one, and referring to Tiger, and starry-eyed parents, referring to his dad. And his point was, these things don't usually turn out well. And, and I just thought that was a profound observation that Jimmy Stewart made at the very tail end of his career. He'd seen how this machine destroys these child stars. And, and I think he was... He was concerned about what was going to happen to this one. How'd you find the? How, were you surprised that the high school girlfriend was so willing to talk, or maybe she wasn't willing at first? I shouldn't presume anything. She wasn't willing at all. Actually, she was very apprehensive. Uh, I worked with her for a year before she was willing to actually do interviews. We were just very patient, and we didn't push people. Um, we were very considerate of the fact that there were there were good reason why someone like her would not want to talk to us. Uh, concerned that she would be exploited, that she would be sensationalized, that she would, you know, be hurt by the way we might frame what she said. But eventually she trusted enough to start doing interviews. And um, I, I had a really good relationship with her. I interviewed her many times. I, I had a lot of respect for her and her family. And, and I also, what I detected in her, and this really went a long ways with me, is that she did not have an ax to grind. And she is not angry at Tiger Woods. And to me, that was really important. I, I really didn't want to interview women who had access to grind and were out to take him down a peg. Um, I was looking for women uh, who, who had meaningful relationships with him and who actually really cared about him. And I sensed that she did that. And so um, I, I ended up spending a lot of time and I gave her as much attention to the narrative as we did because... She had a really, uh, she was his first love. I mean, the first woman that Tiger was intimate with was her. Um, I think the love was real. I I think, you know, she was really good for Tiger. 
And I think Tiger was good for her. I mean, they were a really good couple for three years. I'm happy to take a break here to talk about my great friends at Milton's. We talk about Milton's all the time. We love them. We love Dana. We love Bill. We love all the people there. And get ready for the summer with Tommy. I use Tommy Bahama Vineyard Vines. Those are my clothes. I walk in there. There's stuff I like. I pick it. They help me also, by the way, pick stuff because I can be a disaster on my own. Milton's is the store for men. Very casual if you want that. If you want to look like a million bucks with a suit, with a tuxedo, you can do that as well. But we know now in 2018, I'm looking around the office right now, nobody's going to wear a suit around here. You're going to wear something to look good. You wear a sweater from Tommy Bahama. You have a Vineyard Vine shirt on. You can you can you comfortable pants. You can get the shoes you want in Milton's. You can look great during the day. You can go at night. You can look great. You can play golf. You can go on your summer vacations. Milton's will take care of everything for you. And by the way, if you still need to wear a nice suit or go to a wedding for a tuxedo, Milton's will take care of that for you as well. The prices are great. The clothes are great. Most importantly for me, they are comfortable as can be. And I know when I go in there, they're going to help me look good at a great price. Milton's is the store for men. We are so happy. They're a sponsor of Kirk and Callahan and Enough About Me. South Shore Plaza in Braintree and Chestnut Hill Square. Chestnut Hill, once again, Milton's, the store for men. Well, how about, uh, well, so what was the attempt? I mean, I'm guessing, I'm just presuming again, you tried to reach out and speak to Tiger Woods, right, for the book? Absolutely. And that was just a, multiple times. Immediate no? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the rejections came through his spokesman, Glenn Greenspan, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, his agent, Mark Steinberg, was copied on all of his correspondence. We, we actually, uh, we didn't hound Tiger, nor were we surprised that he didn't want to talk to us. Um, we, the one disappointment for us was that we didn't get the opportunity to even have a conversation with him. And I'm not talking about an interview. But our approach was we, we didn't initially ask for an interview. What we asked for was a conversation, for an opportunity to just to meet and talk about what we were attempting to do yeah, um, and, and see if we could you know come to a place where he might be willing to eventually do an interview with us. But we couldn't even get to the conversation. Right. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, it's fine. Uh, most biographies are written about it's, it's In most instances, biographers don't get to talk to their subjects. And so um, that that wasn't really a big uh, it wasn't a big problem for us. There are parts of the book, and when I say at the beginning that he was an asshole, I I agree with you. I'm looking at the scope of of his life, and the, put it this way, whatever pages, 100 through 250, he seems like that. You're right, and I don't I don't know what kind of daddy is now. I know he made mistakes. I don't know that, but when you read stories like the woman who uh, rented out the house in Augusta to him, or to the guys that you know worked with him who he fired, or uh, Williams, or Haney. Or even O'Meara, the relationship he had with O'Meara, or the way he the way he tipped people, the way he treated people. I mean, he had a stretch where I mean, this was not n- not a pleasant human being. I mean, there's some. I mean, the, the the story of the Gusta, the woman who rented the the house and, and Tiger, and there were the long distance calls made, and there was stuff in the sheets, and there was a mess, and there was no thank you note. There was nothing. I mean, that's a guy who you know is an adult, is one of the most famous people in the world, and treated in his mind a little person like garbage. No, I I thought that. Uh... You're referring to uh, in, basically when Tiger joined the tour, uh, Mark O'Meara, who was uh, his mentor and neighbor and friend, had a relationship with a woman named Peggy Lewis. Peggy Lewis, right. The home in Augusta. And Peggy Lewis would rent her home to Mark and Alicia O'Meara every year for the Masters. And mm-hmm. Tiger started staying there when he j- had just joined the tour. He was single. He didn't have a family yet. And he would stay with the O'Meara's at that house. And Eventually, it became that was the place he went every year. By the time he had, you know, other relationships with even Elon, that stayed there with him one year. But he never acknowledged Peggy Lewis. He never thanked her. He never tipped her. He never he actually. 
she said he never even paid her for staying there. Mark always paid the bill. Right. And um, all she wanted, she was a very simple person, a school teacher, and she was thrilled that Tiger Woods was staying in her home. And, and it would have meant the world to her, and she would have been one of his biggest fans on earth if he would have just one time shaken her hand and said hello. Um, what do you think that's okay. about? What's, what's, what's that about? What, what, the core, what is that? I, I think it, you know, he, I think at that time in his life, there was a massive blind spot for him. And I mean, massive blind spot in terms of things like all the people around him that helped him be who he was. There's, it takes a lot of little people who do simple things to make somebody, you know, be the best in the world at something. And if you go all the way back to the beginning with him, there had always been people around him who were helping him, swing coaches, people who were making his golf clubs, teachers, uh, John Merchant, his first lawyer, his first, right. an amateur. Right. Uh, all of these people, you know, paved the way for him. But the thing that, that Earl never did was Earl was never good at thanking people. He was always good at asking for things or demanding things, but he was never good at saying thank you, which is a simple two words that he just didn't think he needed to utter. And I think Tiger, I'm not excusing Tiger for becoming that way, but he never saw that example as a boy in his dad. And when he became the man, he didn't do it either. And, uh, and I think it, it really hurt him in a lot of ways because that, that um, you know, you mentioned tipping. You know, we went to Vegas and he, instead of being like Charles Barkley, who was a very generous tipper and who always took care of the, the bellmen and the guys at the table and, the, you know, the waitresses in the restaurant. Tiger didn't do that. He was the opposite of that. And I, I think that um, part of that is his personality and part of that is the people he surrounded himself with. I also think the other the, the two big, other, big parts are, number one, he was famous for his whole life, and the other thing is he was an only child. I think that, that combination, yeah. and, he was, and he was not just an only child. I mean, he was sort of the, you know, he was raised to be to be what he was, and I, I just don't think they ever that stuff just wasn't important to them. No, it wasn't. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of the the, the human elements were left by the wayside during the intense focus on golf, and then secondarily on education. I mean, they Tita, his mother, she drilled him on flashcards. She drilled him on all kinds of things at a very early age. But there was no uh, grooming, really, when it came to the social stuff, which is why when he, when he met his first girlfriend in high school, one of the things that she noticed early on was there was a social awkwardness. He didn't have an easy ability to, to communicate and get along with his peers. On the other hand, he, he demonstrated an ability way beyond his years to communicate and get along with adults when he was a teenager. All of that traces back to what was going on in his home. Right. And then you have, I mean, there's so many, you know, obviously there's a million things. The book is great, but there's, there's, there's parts like the, the part, one of the parts I find interesting and it was covered in the, you know, Haney covered it in depth in his book too, is this, this, I mean, how close do you think Tiger Woods was to actually leaving the tours, the number one player in the world, obviously at the time in his prime and trying to become a seal? I mean, was that something that was even feasible? Was he dreaming? I mean, you know, if one is no chance at all and 10 is realistic, how close is that to actually happen, you go into great detail about his training. He went away in secret, not missions, but sort of pretend missions. I mean, was this something that he was actually close to doing? It's something that he definitely really wanted to do. Sure. He was very serious about it, and he was willing to do it. The, the, some, of the, uh, some of the injuries to his body were actually caused 
and aggravated by the training he was doing with SEALs. I mean, he, he was actually running through kill houses and jumping out of planes and running around with backpacks that had weights in them. I mean, he was doing things that no golfer would dream of doing, and he really was fixated on it. I, I think that, you know, people that are listening to this would go, this doesn't make sense when you're the number one, at, when you're the number one person at anything in the world, why would you want to go do something like that? But I think there was, there was always a huge void in, in Tiger's life, and there was always this quest of, of needing and wanting more, which is why I thought it was fascinating. Uh, we interviewed a, one of the girls or w- women that he had a great relationship with um, throughout much of his life. She was like more like a sister to him than anything. And he confided in her once that the, the one place that he loved to be more than any place other than inside the ropes was at the bottom of the ocean. And he said, because down there, there are no people. It's just fish, and there's nobody that can get to me. He, he loved to scuba dive. He loved to be beneath the, the surface of the sea. So we went and interviewed. We found and tracked down the guy who taught him to scuba dive. He lives in Florida. And I did those interviews with him. They were fascinating. And he, he talked a lot about what it was like to teach Tiger to be a scuba diver. And it's fascinating that, that, that when you think about woods and the, the military training and the SEALs and stuff, to me that's all consistent with right. what he wanted out of scuba diving. He basically, he basically masters it right away, right? I mean, or close to it. Yeah. He, well, he, he, what he, yeah, he mastered scuba diving pretty fast, but what he mastered overnight was spearfishing. Well, right. The, that's the, right. Guy, the guy who taught him to spearfish said it was remarkable that after literally one day, the, the skill and the athleticism, his hand-to-eye coordination was so unbelievable. He said he was better than the instructor. From the book's perspective, just, I'll, I'll let you go in a couple minutes, but from the book's perspective, you know, when two guys write a book together, you guys have done this before, is it simply you're going to write this chapter, I'm going to write this chapter, you go talk to the to the teacher who says that, you know, <laughs> who's going to refute the, the, it's a great part of the book because, I mean, if you read that, you know, from the Gary Smith profile and other stuff, like, you know, it's hard to believe. It's 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 It strains... Uh, credibility that this happened to Tiger, that people threw rocks and painted his, his first day of kindergarten. It's not believable. I mean, does, does right. one guy go do that, and then you go talk to the ski instructor, and he goes and talks to Haney, and you go talk to O'Meara, and then you write separately, or is it more collaborative? How does it work? Great question. First of all, let me say that whole business about the kindergarten racial incident, the assault, and unraveling it was all Armin Katayan's okay. incredible investigative journalism that did that. He's the one who went and un unraveled that whole thing and put that together. And he did an amazing job doing it. Um, basically on the writing part, I, I, this is our second book together. When we wrote the system, the college football book, right? Yeah. Football years ago, um, we did literally do every other chapter, so to speak. You know, we took different universities, you know, he took Alabama and Ohio state, Michigan, and I took BYU, Washington state and uh, Oklahoma state. That and seems we, easier just it, simply because they're not related. Yeah. Right. It's, it's much easier, and it doesn't seem stunted to the reader. But right. You can't do that on a biography. And so uh, the way we partitioned the responsibilities was I, I basically took the lead on writing the narrative and, because it has to sound – it's got to be one voice. And so um, we, we broke up the reporting responsibilities, and Armin took you know Las Vegas, PEDs, and the kindergarten incident and all that. And I took the women and uh, the amateur years at Stanford and stuff. So we, we did have some division of labor there, but uh, we, we made a strategic decision on the writing to have, you know, me write the, you know, punch through the narrative. And the way we would do it is I'd, I'd write a chapter. Well, usually it was a clump of them. 
and then I would, you know, send them off to him and he would go through and, you know, edit and polish and then send back to me. And, and then I do the next one. And, and that's how we plowed through uh, the narrative. We, we figured we had to do it that way. There was no way it was going to work. Like you go write these 15 and I'll write 15. That, w- that would not have worked. What led you to, you know, there's been, you know, Tiger's written books, his dad's written books, Haney's written books, a lot of people have written books. Yep. It's been long, you know, all the way back to Charlie Pierce and Gary Smith, all these long right. profiles. What led you guys when you're picking your subject to say, okay, you know what? These guys have all done this, but maybe we can do something else. I mean, what, what was that, I don't know if optimism is the word, but what led you to believe that you could pull it off? Well, we, th- we, we looked at it, we thought, no, but no one's written a, you know, a, a definitive, comprehensive biography that covers the whole field. Well, I guess my point is, why did you, why did you think that was possible? Well, we, <laughs> we hoped it was possible. I mean, right. We saw, we saw something there that we thought could be done. Hank Haney wrote an amazing book. He and did. I love that book. It's a good book. I love that book. It is. It's a great book. But it covers a snapshot of his life. Oh, hold on, because I'm, Jeff, because I'm, I'm going to forget this question. I'll let you answer a second. But aren't you amazed? Because you had said at the, at, the, at the start you would never run into uh, so many people who weren't allowed to talk about this. Aren't you stunned? And you mentioned in the book that Haney never had to sign the confidentiality agreement. That is stunning to me. I mean, everybody else, like you said, there are people who we went to third grade with who wouldn't talk about what color the lockers were at school. And Hank Haney, who's been with him the whole time, did never sign anything. That is, that's crazy to me. It, it, yeah, he was, I think he was as shocked as we were. But when he told us that, uh, Armin and I were together in, in my office when we did that particular interview with Hank. And I remember we both looked at each other like, what? That is insane. <laughs> Jeez. But go ahead. I'm sorry. But did, no, so I... Anyways, the point is, is that we knew, I mean, Haney's book is great. There were some terrific profiles, as you mentioned, Gary Smith, Charlie Pierce, uh, John Feinstein, great, great writers who have covered Tiger at different portions of his life. But nobody had ever taken all of it and, and pieced it all together. And, and that's what a biography is. It's not a snapshot. It's a, it's a comprehensive life portrait up to the, you know, to the current moment. And so we knew that had not been done. And we also understood not long after we were into it why it hadn't been done. I don't think anybody on the golf tour could have written that book. Um, it, it oh, right. No, no, no. Yeah. You know what I mean? You can't it, deal it with them, right. right. No, you can't, you can't do that. And so we came at it as biographers, and we just saw, to us, it was an immense privilege and opportunity to, to write the, the life story of the greatest golfer who's ever lived. And, it, and so while we knew it was going to be hard, we also thought the payoff was going to be was going to be great. Think you'll read it? You know, I, I hesitate to answer that just because I know historically, although they don't like to admit it, he reads everything that's written about him. Right. He, he always has. Um, whether he will or not, I don't know. But I, I liked what Gail Smith, uh, Gail King, said on CBS when she said, uh, "You know, I, I, I." didn't like him a lot before I read this book, but I liked him a lot after I read it. And that's kind of how my wife responded after she read it. My wife's not a golf fan and she's not certainly not a Tiger Woods fan. Um, but when she finished reading it, she said her, her impression of him was much more sympathetic and she wants to see him win. And for my wife to say that about any athlete is amazing because she doesn't follow sports. So, um, you know, that was my takeaway. The right, name of the book is just Tiger Woods. It's Jeff Benedict, Armin Contain. You obviously can get it on Amazon, Barnes Noble, anywhere. It's been number one, right, on the New York Times bestseller list? Yes. 
congratulations on that. And it is, and I'm telling you, I, when I like I said, when I first picked it up, I saw the cover, I would heard about, it and I thought, Ugh, a freaking Tiger Woods. Like I'm gonna hear about how determined he, all the same shit over and over again. It's one of the one of the best sports biographies I've ever read. I, I'm I'm perfectly happy saying that. It's, you guys did a tremendous job on it. You should be proud. Well, I, that means a lot to me, and I'll, I'll certainly pass that on to Armin and say, you know, thank you for both of us. We appreciate that. No, great work, Jeff. I appreciate the time. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening to Enough About Me with Kirk Minahan. If you want more great podcasts, it's pretty easy. You can go to Stitcher. You can go to iTunes. You can look up Enough About Me with Kirk Minahan. You can find the ones with Sean McDonough, Bob Ryan, Dan Shaughnessy, David Portnoy. There'll be more. And what you can do when you like them, you write a review. That'll help us out a lot. You give us a rating. We can help you. You can help us. Get that done. Do it right now. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.